All right, we are taking our Bibles tonight and going to Hebrews chapter 11. This will be the prequel, I guess, of this morning's message from Hebrews 12. If you need some sermon notes, raise your hand and the ushers will get those to you. So this morning, Pastor Tony uh, taught from Hebrews 12 about running the race. And like Pastor Tony, up until uh, seventh grade, I also did not enjoy running. Uh, Unlike Pastor Tony, after seventh grade, I also did not enjoy running. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to choose a different sports analogy to open with tonight and uh, reflect back on the 2014 World Cup soccer tournament. So for those of you who aren't sports fans, this is, this is one of the biggest events, one of the biggest tournaments in the world. And it is one that, uh, unfortunately, the U.S. men's team has yet to win. Uh, now, the women's team, has, they always win it. Uh, it's, it's kind of sad that there's, there's such a disparity between the two. But I'm glad for them. The men's team, on the other hand, uh, always, they always show a little bit of... A little bit of life at different points in the tournament, but when it comes to playing against some of the the soccer superpowers, they just can't keep up. Well, in 2014, uh, there was a a group of fans, um, if you can simplify their their status down to fans, uh, called the American Outlaws. And they they, um, made popular a cheer uh, for the U.S. men's team that, uh, that ended with the statement, I believe that we will win. Okay, and that's repeated over and over again. Uh, psyched the crowds up, got everybody involved. That statement, I believe that we will win. Now, during the 2014 tournament, there were some, some glimmers of hope uh, as we beat uh, Ghana, which is usually one of our nemesis that uh, we usually end up losing to painfully. And uh, so there was, a, you know, that hope there. And, and then uh, a draw with Portugal, which is uh, one of the top, top uh, countries in the world, in the soccer, um, in the soccer realm. Uh, then a close game against Germany. And, you know, though we lost it, it was, you know, it was feeling good. And there was that statement, I believe that we will win. And throughout different games, you know, people's hope was there that there, maybe this was the year that that something would happen miraculous and the U.S. would win. Uh, and so we get into the elimination stage and end up uh, playing against uh, Belgium. And at the end of regulation time, this, the score is still 0-0. Lots of close chances, but no, neither team could put one in. And so there's that, that cheer. I believe that we will win. And unfortunately, in, in second overtime... Uh, the Belgium team scores two before the U.S. gets one late goal, and there's that little spark of hope, and the cheer starts to come back. And then as time expires, the cheer is done. And it became evident that that belief that we could pull out a victory, or possibly even by the remotest stretch, a World Cup championship. The dream was done. The belief was squashed. We're going to talk about belief tonight, or the, the form uh, we see it in the Bible as faith. Now, in the 2014 World Cup, that belief was placed into 
the performance of athletes, the collective uh, play of a team of soccer players, the support of a group of fans, the enthusiasm of a nation. But as we look at Hebrews 11, we'll see our faith is substantially different from that. It is different in quality. It is different in content as well. So let's look at Hebrews 11, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, as Pastor Tony talked this morning about our race, the race that each of us is running in the Christian life, uh, that race is based upon faith. And we are going to look tonight at the nature of this faith. We'll make some comments about uh, the nature of this faith from verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to look at how it affects the race that we run. How does this faith play out in our everyday life? So first of all, let's look at the significance of our faith in, in uh, verse 1. The very beginning of verse 1, uh, the author of Hebrews makes this powerful statement, a uh, very philosophical statement. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. What does that mean? What does he mean, the substance of things hoped for? Well, let's talk about the second part of that. The things hoped for. Uh, this is not like the hope of the, the American soccer fans who were wishing something good would happen. Uh, no, this is the hope of an expectation that we firmly believe something will happen. Things that we look forward to. Uh, faith, then, is the concrete expression of them. The word that, that the author uses here uh, is a word that, that has a primary meaning of a substance or reality. Uh, so, as uh, I believe it was uh, the philosopher Plato talked about the, uh, the things that were, were ideological and the things that were, were concrete, the noumena and phenomena. And this is not, you know, the author is not going in that, that realm, but, but he has the same sort of, of language here, that there is a, a, an idea out there, that, that concept of what we're looking forward to in the future, and then that comes down into a concrete substance or expression in the form of our faith. And the same term he uses here, maybe it will help to understand, uh, he also uses in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where he's talking about uh, God's Son. And he says, Who, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That express image is the same word that Paul uses, uh, or that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 11, the substance. So just as Christ takes God and brings him to the flesh, our faith takes those things that we hope for, those things that we look forward to, 
and brings them into a concrete form in the here and now. That is what our faith is. Our faith is not something that, that exists only in our, in our mind or only in our heart or only in our gut. Like that, it's not a feeling. It's not a, it's not a, a grand idea. The faith is something concrete that is expressed through the way that we live. Uh, faith makes a substantial difference in every decision that we make, in the course of action that we take. I don't think there's any better uh, way to, to describe this, but to turn to, to James in chapter 2, a passage that we're familiar with. When he is talking about faith, he describes how it works. James chapter 2 Verses 14 down through 24. We'll just look at a few of these verses. Uh, I'm in James 1. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or can that kind of workless, non-applicable faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you says to, him, to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Saying faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is comprised of those things that we look forward to, those things we know about God, and they are manifest concretely in our lives. Going off of that idea that James presents, uh, the author of Hebrews also kind of brings into play that this, uh, your second point, the evidence of faith, this is something that can be seen and will be seen by other people. Faith will be noticeable to others. Now, the second part of verse 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. As I titled your notes this, this evening, evidence of the invisible. The things that we cannot see are brought into view, are brought into uh, a realm in which others can notice them by, by faith. James says, show me your faith without your works, or basically, try to show me your faith without works. You can't do it, and I will show you my faith by my works. And Paul is saying here, sorry, I keep saying Paul, the author of Hebrews. Anytime I say Paul, just substitute the author of Hebrews, and uh, you'll get the point. He may have been the author, but probably not. Uh, That is debated. So, Verse 2 then says, For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And the, chapter 11 goes on uh, to describe some of these elders and the testimony that they had with God. In verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, something that was noticed in him, his testimony. Just as eyesight produces a conviction about things in the physical world, we see things 
So we are assured of their existence. Faith is what gives evidence uh, of the existence of God and the eternal, the eternal world. The, the word here that is used as, as testimony, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Enoch had a good testimony. Uh, verse 39, as he summarizes the acts of all the unnamed people of faith in the Old Testament, uh, he refers to them, he says, these all, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. This word uh, that is translated testimony uh, has the idea of, of someone approving or speaking well of, of them to attest on the basis of personal knowledge. So God is saying, I saw something different in them. The people around them saw something different in them. And the substantial difference was their faith and the way that it played out in their life. Um, so we look at these men, these, these heroes of the faith. Certainly they weren't perfect, but substantially their lives were driven by faith. Let's look then in verse 3 at the content of our faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And what, what the author here is getting at is that faith allows us to understand the world correctly. Because if we're just looking at, at the world around us, trying to explain what we see, we will never arrive at the right conclusion. We will never, we'll never get far enough to know why things happen, to know where they came from. Again, this faith that we're talking about is not a favorite team, hope they win kind of, kind of idea. It's not a, I hope I get, get this a promotion, or I hope I get uh, this sort of benefit, or I hope this happens to me in the next couple of years. It's not that, that sort of hope. It's a confident assurance of what God has revealed to us. And so, as we talk about the content of our faith, the content of our faith is what we see, what we read in the Word of God, that the worlds were framed by God's spoken voice. Uh, we read about God. We're His attributes are described to us. His, his character is conveyed through stories, through, through lecture, through, through poetry, all of this we read of God, and that informs our faith. That is the content of our faith. And what this says here is that the things that are most real, the things that are most lasting, the things that are most significant are not the things that we see, that we can touch, that we can, that we can feel, that we can, um, that we can handle the people that we uh, interact with. You know, physically, we can see them. We know that they're here. We know who they are. But the things that are more real are the things we cannot see. Uh, it's not, there's no way that we can, can come to the right conclusion if we're just basing our lives on what we can see and evaluate. 
a humorous uh, little excerpt uh, from a philosopher, William James, was giving a lecture uh, one evening on the origins of the universe. And as, as the story goes, uh, afterwards, after he finished this lecture, he was approached uh, by an older lady. And the lady s- reprimanded him and said, that's not true. We all know that, that the earth is, is held up on the back of a large turtle. Um, maybe hearkening back to some, some ancient Indian teachings. But she, she confronted him and she said, we, we know that, that the earth is on the back of a large turtle. And so he plays along. He says, well, what does the turtle stand on? And she says, ah, very clever, Mr. James. And that's a great question. Of course, the turtle is standing on the back of a bigger turtle. And so he responds and says, well, what is that? And as he was responding, she cuts him off and she says, no, it's no use, Mr. James. It's turtles all the way down. So coming up with an explanation of the world that we see based on what we can feel, based on what we can experience, based on what we can empirically test through the scientific method is never going to get us to the explanation that God is the first mover, that God is the uncreated creator who set all of this into place. Our faith is not something that we can prove scientifically. But just because we can't prove it scientifically doesn't mean there's no evidence or ration behind it. Um, But science can only deal with what is physical, what is observable, what is repeatable. And our faith goes much beyond that to a God who spoke the world into existence. This faith that we understand through the Word of God is the lens by which we interpret everything that we experience It helps us to arrive at conclusions of why things happen, how we should make decisions, uh, how we reconcile hard issues. That all comes down to a matter of faith. And proper faith has the content of, of Scripture, of God's Word, of God as the omniscient one, as the all powerful one, as the uncreated eternal one the one who has no beginning and no end, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And it's in his sovereignty that he has set the things that we see into place. So that's our faith. That's the significance of our faith, the evidence of our faith that others can see, the content of our faith. But as we talked, faith without works is dead. How should our faith affect us? How should this work itself out in our life? How should it affect the race that we run every day, the big decisions, the little decisions? We'll look at three different aspects, uh, three different ways that our faith should affect us. First of all, faith pushes us to depend on God. Faith pushes us to depend on God. When we step back, And we think about verse 3 there that we just read and where that puts us into the scope of God's plan. Are we not insignificant? Are we not powerless to affect any of, of these grand things that God has shown countless times? 
We can't explain one little slice of, of the universe. And God has made it all. And so in day-to-day life, our faith in God should push us to depend on Him. He has given us many tasks, many commandments that as Christians should, should be our goal. The great, the great Commission, where He says, Make disciples of all nations. Who is sufficient for that? In Romans 6, 12, we're given the command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Just a small sampling. But who is sufficient for these tasks? These things, as we recognize how how sinful, how weak, how frail we are as, as humans, as sinners saved by grace, that part of our faith should push us to depend on God, to be going to Him in prayer, saying, God, I don't understand this. Help me to understand. I don't know how this will work out, but help me to take this step anyway. It should drive us to His Word. It should drive us to seek answers in the Bible. It should drive us to depend completely on Him. So faith allows, or faith pushes us to depend on God. Faith allows us, secondly, to endure difficulty with purpose. You read down through, through Hebrews 11. You don't get the picture of many of these saints sitting back in their hammocks sipping their lemonade, reading a book. They lived difficult lives. They were not comfortable. They were not, uh, they were not easy. And when trials come into our lives, when things come at us that we are not prepared for, whether it's financial, whether it's a relationship problem, something that you thought was was. A security blanket has been ripped away from you. Uh, maybe it's a friend has, has stabbed you in the back. Or a spouse has turned away from you. Uh, maybe it's a child who is consistently uh, disrespecting you. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a parent who is just, uh, just needs your help as they go through the later stages of life. Uh, and you are drained, and, and it's tough. These difficulties, whatever they are, there are countless different variations that we all face in the race that we are running. But faith allows us to endure these difficulties, not just to get through them, but to endure them with purpose. We're familiar with, with Paul's statements in Second Corinthians chapter 12. But let me, let me just read these verses. Uh, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Paul had this difficulty. He had a lot of other difficulties too. But this is the one he mentions here. And he says... Uh, he was told then, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
And so Paul was given the instruction that this difficulty of yours is so that, that God's strength could be evidenced in him. So whatever the difficulty is, whatever the trial is, you can look, you can try to, try to figure out why this is happening, what, what purpose God has in it for you. Often we, our instinct is to say, well, what lesson does God want to teach me through this? Because I want to learn it so we can move on and not have this difficulty anymore. Is that our first instinct, right? Uh, we want to learn the lesson and move on. But sometimes we will never know why God has us go through, through trials. But even, even in that situation, we go through a long, grueling trial. We can do it purposefully because of our faith. We can rest in a God who cares for us, who has, has shown his goodness, and he has promised us an eternity with him. We can look forward to that. We can endure temporary afflictions. Though outwardly our bodies are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. There's a psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor. And as he, he was thinking and reflecting back over the, the concentration camps, the things that he saw there, uh, during, during those years, he wrote, uh, and this was quoting, uh, I believe, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche, who, uh, who wouldn't support almost anything that he wrote, but he was spot on here. Uh, Frankl, wrote, Frankl wrote, He who has a why to live, a why to live for, can bear with almost any how. Uh, and after... After being through the concentration camp, after seeing people killed, seeing people suffer at the hands of other people, uh, he was able to see there was a difference between different people. Uh, He was interested in why the spirits of some were indestructible and others were not. What was at stake was not the how. It was not the circumstances. They were all in the same situation. They had no control over that situation. Instead, if those people were going to rise above their situations, if they were going to rise unbroken from that grueling trial, they had a why. They had something to live for, some reason beyond the here and the now to pursue. Uh, In this situation, it wasn't always faith in God. It might have been hope for reunification with someone else. It might have been uh, a, a chance to, to get back at those who were in authority. But whatever, they had a why. And as Christians, we have the why. When we suffer, we do so for Christ's sake. Whether, we not, whether or not we know exactly how that's going to, to give him glory, we can go through hardships knowing that our God is still on the throne and that he will use this for good, no matter how it looks. And thirdly, faith drives us to take risks for God's sake. Faith drives us to take risks 
for God's sake. Living by faith is a risky business. While Paul's thorn in the flesh was something that came upon him, he was a recipient of that trial, of that difficulty. There's another sense in which Christ's followers are not just called to respond to trials that are given to them, but they are called, we are called, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to embrace the potential for some hardships because of our faith. I want to talk about this, this point now for a while. Faith drives us to take risks for God's sake. Now, there are, the Christian life is full of these risks that we're called to take. Let me just point out a few of them. In Matthew 5.41, uh, as Christ was, was speaking to the Jews there, under Roman occupation, uh, he, t- he gave them the instruction. He says, if anyone, typically a Roman soldier, had the right to do this, forces you to go with them one mile, go with him too. And our, our flesh says, oh, well, that's going to put me out. I mean, not only do I have to carry his stuff for, for twice the distance, but when I'm done, I have to walk back two miles too. And I, I have things to do. I have a family to feed. You know, this is my responsibility. But Christ was calling the people there his followers, to take that risk, to say, live in such a way that you can embrace this, uh, this opportunity. What about another one? Husbands, love your wives and give yourselves for them. As, or husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So if we are, are unconditionally loving our wives... What if they take advantage of us? What if they say, oh, he's, he's showing some kindness. Let's see how far we can push this. Now, hopefully, wives, that wasn't your first thought. But there's a potential for that in a relationship. If two people are not at the same level, one of them may be taken advantage of. Uh, the same could go the other way, where wives submit to your husbands. Husbands or wives, is there the, the tendency to think, I can't submit to him. What if he, what if he is, is unreasonable? Well, these things are risky because it calls us to make a sacrifice. What about the, the command, do not give place to wrath. Do not get angry uh, unnecessarily. Well, how then are my neighbors supposed to know that their leaves blowing into my yard is a really big problem? Okay, I need to tell them. Or how are my children supposed to know that their disobedience is a big issue if I don't come down hard on them? Okay, do not give place to wrath. There's a risk involved in that. Turning the other cheek. There's a risk involved with that. The question, as... As humans, maybe especially as Americans, can we spend so much time protecting our rights that we miss the path that faith demands we should take? You know, it's when you go into a restaurant, 
and the service is poor. Do you demand compensation at the cost of your testimony? Okay, you, you have a right to get what you paid for. Are you going to hold fast to that right and lose your testimony with a waiter or waitress? This could apply to any area of our lives, but are we quick to hold fast to our rights or do we let them go and say, God, in obedience, I might, I might let myself be taken advantage of uh, for the sake of your name? When we're talking about risk, it's, it's sometimes hard to put ourselves in the place where we are that confident that we are doing what is right that we are willing to accept whatever consequences that brings. I want to look at at two examples here, one positive and one negative. Uh, So if you'll turn back to Daniel uh, chapter chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I want to look at a positive positive example. Now, we could have stayed in Hebrews 11, uh, and I challenge you to read through that and just read through it with the the things that we talk about regarding faith tonight. Read through it with those in mind. But now I want to look at Daniel chapter 3. A story that most of us are familiar with of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar having set up this idol of himself and is commanding everyone to bow down and worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have covenanted among themselves to worship no one other than Jehovah God. And so, at the queue, while everyone bowed down, they were there standing alone. I have a, have a picture of this um, from a friend who was, was over in Istanbul uh, during the time of Ramadan. And he was at, uh, at the, the outskirts of the Blue Mosque And there in front of him were tens of thousands of Muslims. And with the call to prayer, all of these Muslim men bowed down. And he and his wife and another pastor from our former church were standing there watching everyone else bow down. And he just said, you know, chills went down his spine. Now, that situation was was not dangerous. But here... The penalty for not doing that was, was death. And they knew that. So then they stand before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar basically says, maybe you didn't understand. I'm going to give you a second chance. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied in verse 16 after they were threatened with this fiery furnace. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I want you to notice the first couple words of verse 18. But if not... 
They were walking by faith, a faith that said, we believe that our God is able to deliver us from the most powerful man on the earth at the time, who, in this instant, was not happy with him. And they're saying, our God is able to deliver us from your hand, but we don't know if he will. That, to them, was irrelevant. Whether they would be burned alive in that fiery furnace, they did not know. But they knew they had a hope, a hope of God's sovereignty, a hope of God's future that he had promised to them. And so they took a risk. They said, we will walk by faith and we will not bow down to your idol. And we know the end of the story that God did choose to deliver them in that situation. But that's not always the case. Hebrews 11, some were were stoned, some were sawn asunder, not accepting deliverance. These people took a risk. As a negative example, you go back to Numbers 13, 31. Uh, I'll just summarize this, this one quickly. It's a negative example. We don't need to spend too long on it. But after the people had seen, had, had left Egypt, the Israelites had seen God's hand, his ability to deliver them uh, through the plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, the, the demolition of Pharaoh's army. And they approach the promised land. They send in the, the 12 spies. The spies come back, and the people say, there's giants in the land? We can't. We can't fight against giants. What, what had they just seen? And they said, we're not going to go in the land. Their faith, they, they did not take what they knew about God and apply it to their current situation. They did not walk by faith. And they ended up suffering the consequences of that, that desire to avoid risk for the for the illusion of safety that they might have. And as we consider the Christian life, it really is an illusion of safety that we, that we often struggle with. Uh, when, we, when we feel God calling us to take a hard step, to maybe leave our families, to maybe uh, change vocation, to, to say something, to confront someone at work. We are really battling between the risk that might cost us something and the illusion of safety that we have if we don't do it. Uh, but that safety, as the Israelites found out, is fleeting. We talk about making these hard decisions. Uh, I just want to to bring, bring up the idea that, that this needs to be because of our faith. This needs to be an outworking of our faith. There's lots of, lots of reasons that people can, can give for making hard decisions. Some people just like the sense of adventure. They're not going to drive the straightest route. They're going to take the, the back roads in their cross-country road trip uh, because they like adventure. So they're going to embrace the difficult things. That's not, that's not what the Christian life is about. We're not doing, doing hard things just because they're hard and we want to prove that we can. 
Uh, it's not, uh, not the sense of adrenaline uh, that, that you can get by, by overcoming some obstacle. Uh, that's not why we take risks as Christians. It's also not asceticism, where the feeling that the harder I make my life, the more pleasing it will be to God. Uh, that, that, is, that is a desire to justify ourselves by our works. And that's not what God calls us to do. We have been justified by grace through faith. But that faith should drive us to do whatever God asks of us. Whether the course that he has us run would go up and over a mountain, he doesn't want us to go through the tunnel. He wants us to go up and over the mountain. And so as our, as our decisions, as these um, possibilities come into our lives uh, that we see God calling us to take, we need to be, be driven by our faith and not by some, some other motive. When Scripture states uh, that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12, I think to some of the people that uh, I met on a, re- uh, a missions trip uh, to the Middle East recently, some high school students, young men, who stood up for Jesus in, in the midst of, of many Islamic classmates and was beaten for it, a young lady who did the same thing, a pastor that we met, not much older than myself, uh, who I got a report from, uh, a week and a half ago, that he was was mugged outside of a store by some uh, people who opposed uh, his teaching about Jesus Christ. These people that we look, we see the difficulties in their lives. And for them, and somehow, because they live in that context, it seems to make sense. Have we avoided that same fate by taking the path of least resistance in the context in which we live. One of the authors I read uh, in an evangelism book talked about the pain line. In, in talking with someone about the gospel, there is a point in which, of necessity, you need to cross a line that will offend them. The point in which you are saying, you are a sinner. You have transgressed against God and you are deserving of hell. That line, that aspect of the gospel is hard to talk about. People don't like to hear that. It's easy to talk about God's love and forgiveness and those are beautiful aspects of the gospel, but we can't leave out the fact that sin needs to be addressed. And so as you cross that pain line, there is some risk involved. What will the person say? Will they, will they hate me because I'm saying this? Will our relationship be over? There's that risk involved. Remember during my, I believe in my second year of seminary, there was a, a class that took place over the summer, and it was called the Summit uh, Ministry Simulation. And what it was was a week-long uh, block course in which we were put into situations that would typically be faced, that we would be faced with in ministry. And we had to work through them with the other people in the class. And at the end of the week, 
uh, we had several of our professors who were watching us, taking notes, and they gave us feedback on strengths and weaknesses and, and things that we did well and things that we, we shouldn't have done at all. Uh, it was quite uh, interesting to see some of the mistakes that we made. But one of the things that really stuck in my mind was the professor's feedback about our, our first day in the simulation. And on that first day, we were given the task of choosing roles for each of us within the church. It was a, a made-up name of Sweetbriar Sweet Baptist Church. And so within Sweetbriar, we all had to have different roles that we would play throughout the week. And they made this comment. He said to, to all of us who were involved, he said, in choosing the roles, you exhausted every opportunity, every path to avoid conflict in selecting roles for each person. Now, when in the class, there were certain people that we didn't want to be the head pastor, certain people we didn't want to be you know, in charge of this, this area or that area. But we wouldn't say that and because none of us wanted to offend anyone else. And... It, it became apparent. They told us, you know, at the end of the week that the whole week could have run better if you had been willing to take some risks in that first meeting, in that first discussion of who would be where, to get some things on the table. Now, it would have been hard uh, to say why we didn't think someone was qualified for this position or that position. That would have been risky. We said because nobody wanted to stick their neck out, we ended up with a default position of whoever volunteered for something was the one who got it. So when we are faced with a choice between a comfortable path and a hard step that pleases God, our faith is evidenced when we choose the difficult, God-exalting route. We have promises from God uh, your next blank there. We have promises from God that assure us that even the hardest of choices we make for his, his sake will be worth it. Okay. There's some elements here in, in Mark 10 uh, that, that I never noticed before. Uh, let, me, let me just read a few verses for you from, from Mark 10. Mark 10, 28 through 30. Uh, then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this present time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. That's not the end, though. It'd be nice to stop there. Uh, but the next statement he makes is with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So we don't have a promise that, that our path is going to be easy, that following God is going to you know, eventually turn out where we have an abundance of material possessions. There is a sense in which 
these benefits that God is saying, they will come to you. They will also come at a cost. They will come with persecutions. You may not realize them in the physical sense, but God will take care of you. He will make your, your path worth it. Romans chapter 8, uh, we are assured that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That is a great promise that, that we, are, we are his. And in the middle of that, that statement, of all the things that could not, could not separate us, uh, he, Paul quotes the verse, uh, that we are killed all the day long. Uh, in Luke 21, he, in, in Christ's statement of um, the end times or, or tribulations, his, what his followers would go through, he makes the statement. Let me, let me find it and read it. It's a... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote it. So, Luke, Luke 21, 19, or 17. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Oh, sorry, verse 16. You will be betrayed even by your parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all men, but not, of your hair, not a hair of your head shall be lost. How do we reconcile a statement like that? A statement that not a hair of your head will be lost. A statement that says, well, everything will be okay. If you look at verse 16, they will put some of you to death. He's not saying that you will have a life that is free of conflict, that is free of pain, is free of suffering. He is saying, through that pain and suffering, I will watch out for you, and I will usher you in to eternity, making sure that, that you as a whole are safe. Remember that the risk in these decisions, these things that God calls us to do, is what it will cost us, not whether it's right or wrong. When we're following God, the risk is not, this might be the right thing to do, this might be the wrong thing to do. The risk is, this might cost me a lot, this might not cost me so much. That I don't know. But when we walk by faith, we take that path, no matter what the risk is. We cannot evaluate decisions made for Christ based on the resulting quality of our lives. We can't look back over the last three years and say, this, these three years have been tough. What did I do before that that God is correcting me for or that I, sh- I, I made a wrong decision about? In fact, we could do the, the very best thing right now and our lives could be hard for the next the rest of our lives. My family has recently been listening uh, to some audiobooks of missionary heroes. And while we could, we could pull out plenty of illustrations from, from, Romans, or from Hebrews 11 here, I just want to talk about three missionaries, three, three that you've probably heard of, you are at least uh, familiar with their names, and talk about some of the situations 
that came up in their lives. So Gladys Aylward, as a young lady saved in London, God placed in her heart the desire to be a missionary in China. She didn't have a whole lot of money. She scraped together enough money not to buy a boat ticket, but to buy a train ticket uh, through Europe, through Russia, to China. She had a contact there. She, uh, she was not uh, accepted by China Inland Mission, uh, so she did not have any sort of formal support. She was going there uh, by faith. And the train ticket that she did manage to buy was discounted because it was going through a war zone uh, with Russia and China being at war. And before she even made it to China, she almost died. She almost froze to death in Siberia after the train stopped and she had to walk for two days back to a previous town uh, because the train was stuck in the war zone. She was almost kidnapped then and sold as a, as a machine worker uh, for the Russian army. Bef when she made it to China, the person that she was expecting to find was not there. She had another couple weeks' journey through the mountains. Uh, eventually found the person and... They, didn't, they weren't really compatible. They didn't work well together. The lady she went to work with uh, did not really care for her. And throughout her ministry, she experienced a lot of hardships. That was just the beginning. She eventually, though, because of God's calling in her life, she was able to reach most of one province as the foot inspector. She was able to, to influence hundreds of children through her orphanage and rescue the lives of close to a hundred of them uh, during World War II when the Japanese were approaching. She makes this statement, Life is pitiful, death so familiar, suffering and pain so common, yet I would not be anywhere else. Do not wish me out of this or in any way seek to get me out, for I will not be got out while this trial is on. These are my people God has given them to me, and I will live or die with them for him and his glory. What a statement. Move along and talk about Hudson Taylor's life. Like Gladys Aylward, uh, he was headed for China. He also uh, was not accepted by, by the, the main mission board of that time. Uh, he had to go with another mission board that ended up being a difficulty in and of itself in that they wouldn't send money, that they failed to coordinate things for him. And before he even got in the open seas, he almost died uh, in a storm that, that pushed the ship uh, very close uh, to the rocks at the edge of, of Wales, I believe it was. He, he arrived in China in the middle of a civil war, uh, had very little money, almost starved. Uh, he lost most of his possessions to a fire several years later. He lost his first child and almost his own life to disease there in China. And yet he has these things to say. Let me read two quotes from him. Unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. I have found that there are the that there are three stages in every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Then it is done. 
The third missionary, just a quick excerpt uh, that I'd like to talk about is Adoniram Judson, who God gave him the burden to take the gospel, to take the Bible to the Burmese people. He lost his first wife uh, in pursuit of that, that goal. He lost his first three children to the pursuit of that goal. He lost his second wife in the pursuit of that goal. Uh, he faced hardship after hardship. He had this to say, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. You look at, at people like these three, people that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, they are, are icons of faith. As we look at them, we see that their actions were motivated by what they knew about God, by what he had done in their lives. And above all else, this gave a picture to everyone looking at their lives that there is a God in heaven and that he is the God of the universe. Remember, though, as we look at, at these people in Hebrews 11, as we look at these, these famous missionaries, we need to remember, as Pastor Tony pointed out this morning, that their race is not our race. But the race, whatever ours looks like, should be characterized by faith. For some of you, it was, you know, at the point of your profession of salvation, you had to take a risk and tell your family, who you know would not be, ha- you knew would not be happy with you becoming a Christian. For others of you who have grown up in a Christian light, in a Christian home, that step into Christianity, that that faith that you placed in 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 God did not come with a big risk. But at some point in your life, God may call you to take a large risk. He calls all of us to take small risks, for sure. But I want us to consider tonight, where is our faith? Is our faith just up in our head? Is it something that we profess, but we don't live out? What does it look like in our lives? If it doesn't look like anything in our lives, Can we say that it's there? Can we say that I have faith even though you can't see it in my works? Let me just ask a few questions uh, for us to think about. First question, do I tend to take the easy way out of every situation God places me in? What does that say about my faith? Being honest, I can, can look back on these situations and say, God, you were calling me to say something to that person and I just kept going in my busy schedule. That needs to change. We need to be willing to take that that risk, that step. If I ask several close friends to name some evidences of faith in my life, what would they be able to say? What would they point to? Are my big and little life choices driven more by the American dream or by the furtherance of God's kingdom? These are questions that I know in my life. I know as I've thought about these missionary stories, as I've thought about the people that I've met in more difficult situations, it makes me think about my faith. How real is it for me? 
Am I pursuing God? Am I pursuing God at all costs? Am I pursuing what he wants me to do at all costs? I just close with, with this statement, this prayer uh, from the father of a demon-possessed child recorded in Mark 9.24. says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We talk about faith. We realize that God, for those of us who are saved, God has begun that good work into, in us. Let's ask him to perform it, to continue working that out until the day he calls us home. Let's pray. Father, as we look at, at your word, Lord, we are not worthy to be called your followers. We are not worthy to be your disciples, but yet you have chosen us. You have chosen us to be called by the term Christian, one who is a little Christ. Lord, for those here who, who have never taken that first step of faith to, to place their belief in you, to, to hang their lives on the work that you finished on the cross, Lord, we just ask that you would work in their lives tonight, that they would seek one of us out later to talk about that. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, you, we ask that you would help us as we count the cost of discipleship that we would be willing to pay whatever it is that you require of us. Whatever path you lead us down, whatever race you have us run, Lord, may we not take shortcuts. May we not back down in the day of adversity. But Lord, may we, we run with faith the course that is set before us, uh, that we may follow in the steps of the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we ask that you would be pleased by our conversations, by our actions tonight, that it would all exemplify the faith, uh, of the faith in you, faith that we read about in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Right. You are dismissed.